Welcome to Better Begins Here, the podcast for people who are striving to become the best version of themselves possible. I'm Adam Crofts, the founder and CEO of Prevail. We help you get the most out of your training with our smartware. I spent this podcast series talking to athletes who are right at the top of their game. They tested out the Prevail Smartware in our gym and gave you the lowdown on what they got out of using it. But they've also talked about the difficult times and how they keep pushing to give that extra 1% every single day. In this episode, you're going to hear from champions like Team GB sprinter Adam Jamili, Paralympian Kadena Cox, gymnast Georgia May Fenton and tennis player Jody Burridge. You'll hear how they've all overcome adversity to come out on top including some of their defining moments where they've turned things around, dealt with pressure, or tackled those difficult moments head on to come back stronger. You'll hear all about their training and hopefully take some lessons from them, which will help you with your training too. When I spoke to Paralympic and MasterChef champion, Kadena Cox, I got a massive insight into coping with adversity and how to build yourself back up from scratch through setting goals. In 2014, I was I was actually training for the 400, and then I had a stroke um, wow. in the May, and then spent kind of like three, four months recovering from that, um, and then got ill again in September, and then I was diagnosed with the multiple sclerosis, and that was tough. Mm. Uh, you know, I was a 23 year old that first day I had a stroke, which you know I thought, okay, this is bad, but I can recover from this. Like, yes, there is a risk of recurrent strokes, but like, you know, it's not like having a condition like what I have now. So when I was diagnosed with MS, it was kind of like, okay, this is now a lifelong condition. Right. Um, this is going to impact me for the rest of my life. My condition can change. Like at any point, you know, I could become like severely disabled or, you know, just con- constantly get worse. And, you know, there's constantly always kind of thinking about whether I'm going to have another relapse and how that's going to impact me and my life and, you know, what I'm capable of. So as a 23 year old, you know, your yeah. head kind of just goes wild and you just think, you know, is my life over? So that was a challenging time in my life. I'm a very goal-driven person, yeah. um, so having targets and having goals was going to help me to get through the struggles that I had with the MS, and that I knew if I set myself goals and, you know, had, like, micro goals and whatever, I'd be able to get through the challenges that I was facing at that point. Like, focus on the next point, constantly something to, to work towards and strive towards. It, it's such an athlete mindset, and yeah. it's what has helped me being, like, you know, as successful as I am, um, and it really helped me get through that time because it's just that kind of okay, I need to be able to walk by myself. I need to be able to get up the stairs by myself. I need to be able to open a bottle for myself. I need to be able to, you know, get in the bathroom by myself. And they're all, you know, little things that allowed me to be able to then become a great athlete and also, you know, a MasterChef champ. (laughs) Because (laughs) there was a point I couldn't even butter my own toast. So, you know, we really had to work on that. And yet, was that like you had to kind of retrain all these these motor skills on the back of that first stroke then? Yeah, yeah. So I wow. was, um, yeah, I ended up quite impaired. Like after um, my MS diagnosis, I was unable to walk by myself. I had really bad, like fine motor skills. So like, yeah, opening bottles, like cutting stuff. I kind of like Fred Flintstone, like my food and just like stabbed my fork into like everything because I just didn't have the movement. Being able to like, you know, get in and out of the bath was a real struggle. So my mum wow. would like have to help me with stuff like that. Yes, I couldn't cook anything for myself. Like brushing my teeth was also a struggle. Even like being able to turn on the TV because all I did was kind of sit in bed, you know, like just watch TV. But even being able to like press the remote, like it was hard. Like I was like, mom, like I want to watch something else. 
just it's like mind blown, isn't it? Thinking even for us in here, hearing it now, like thinking of where he was back then. Did you have that vision of where you could be now? Was that always there driving you that whatever condition you had then, you're going to go and win gold medals all around the world? Um, like, it's one of those, like, I think as, as an athlete, you always dream of being, you know, Olympic, Paralympic champion. And I'd always dreamed of being an Olympic champion. And I think when I was in hospital, I was like, do you know what? Like I now have this dream of being able to be an athlete. And at that point I didn't know whether I was going to still be able to get back and be able to be an Olympic champion or whether I was going to be Paralympic. Um, and I wasn't fussed either way. I just knew I was going to get back into sport. So I had that like dream of like, being like a gold medalist and that's yeah. you know the carrot that was a million miles away at that point wow. um but you know you've got that big goal and for me it was just like working backwards to work out what I needed to do to get me to that long-term point so yeah it was just all the little things in between you know all the falls all the stumbles all the spilt food you know all the it's little incredible. tantrums like to get me to yeah so, so who who was like massively influential then like helping shape goals help with the day-to-day my mum was literally like my saviour, like through most of it. Like, I mean, the woman had to shave me legs for me, poor woman. But then I had like great friends around me. My coach was amazing. So my athletics coach, when I started with him, he was just, he'd been working with like um, British Paralympics anyway. So like okay. worked with the Paralympic athletics team, was in the Paralympic scene already prior to even having me as a disabled athlete. So it was quite nice to have someone that understood, you know, Olympic yeah. sport as well as Paralympic sport to help transition me. So him and his wife um, were really helpful. And then, yeah, like I say, just good friends, like just like kind of helping me to stay positive. Like I had friends that really supported me when I moved back out of my parents and back to Manchester. I just became really bossy. It was like, cut this this way, put this in there. Like you need to want this. So I just, I did become a little bit bossy. Managing um, your team. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I did have a great team. I'm like, yeah, like I say, my mum and dad, like all my siblings. I remember my little sister who was probably like six or seven at the time when I first got ill. Like she always like loved to come and like help me like cut up my food. Like whenever I was struggling, like she'd oh. come over and you know get a little knife and fork and like cut up like my like chicken or my, my steak or whatever for me. I did still eat red meat at that point in life. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else I've learned from when it comes to dealing with adversity is the British sprinter, Adam Jamili. Adam was the first Briton to run under 10 seconds in 100 meters. He's fast. For Adam, mental focus is just as important as his physical training. He works with Professor Steve Peters, who's the man behind the Chimp Paradox model. It's the model that helps you take control of your emotions and act in your own best interest. We talked a lot about mindset, and as you'll hear, the one thing that challenged his mindset the most was the Olympics being cancelled in 2020. Honestly, that was the most devastated I've ever been in the sport. That's the best shape I've ever been in. I'd come off a really good year last year. I just missed out on the medal. I was, I was fourth in Doha in the 200 metres. I was leading the race to like 150. Like I was, and then I died. Like I ran a stupid race, but I was in such good shape. I had no injuries. I was running PBs. And, and like we train every day. You don't. It's not very often you get a PBs. I was lifting good in the gym. I was the lightest I've ever been. I was like, do you know what? This, this is my year. And for it to be taken away from me I was just heartbroken and I get it and and it was the right thing to do because there was so much bigger things happening in the world and what happened was bigger than sport but it still didn't change the fact that we trained all that time for that moment and when I thought I was ready it just got taken away from me I was in America as well at the time I couldn't travel back to the UK and you just don't know what to do with yourself you're in the peak performance and you don't want to stop training because you'll lose that but what are you training for yeah how, how did you deal with it I didn't really I was I was gutted I just I, I ate a lot of bad food yeah um and yeah I just 
just spoke to my friends and my family and like I, I I did come to terms with it when I realized what was happening in the world and how many people were in a bad way and like how much bad stuff was happening but very selfishly I was very upset and, and quite angry it's not selfish like the amount of effort and work you put <laughs> yeah I was, yeah but it's yeah it, I guess you can look at it both ways but for me yeah I was devastated. Did anyone, anyone help pull you through then? Was my group, still... my training group, we were all in the same position. So everyone yeah. was in great great shape. And then for, for all athletes around the world, for it just to be done, mm. literally like within the, a blink of an eye, it was um, super tough, super tough to, to comprehend. But we were all in the same boat. So we we're all sharing feelings. And in my training group, we we're all very open. We talk to each other. We help each other. It's not like we could go out and celebrate, like go out and help each other, like go for a drink or go bowling or because everything was shut because um, of because of lockdown but it was a uh, definitely it was good to share that experience with other athletes who were in the same position as you yeah did you feel ready going into into the games this time Ment like we talk about mentally physically mentally yes physically I, there was a lot of stuff that I, I would have I would have liked to have felt a little bit ready but I was definitely ready to go and challenge for a medal yeah. I was in such good I hadn't really run that fast going into it which was but people were for me I always raised my game at the champs yeah but I'd, I was running against my training partners and, and beating them and, and running so quick. And then, yeah, I went to Tokyo in the warm-up, literally the last run before I was about to go out and run onto the track. I felt my hamstring grab and I knew straight away, I've done something I've done something here. And my coach was like, how are you feeling? I was like, I've got to try. I said to my physio, strap up my leg. I'm going to go out there and try. He was like, no, I don't think. I was like, listen. I've not come all this way to Japan to just sit on the sidelines. I have to try. I took one step out of the blocks and I just ended up walking to the finish. I think the official time that, so because I crossed the finish line, they gave me an official time. It was like two minutes. That's the slowest at 200 meters in history. You've gone fastest, yeah. fastest at 10 and slowest. Honestly, like it's, it was crazy. I just, someone tweeted me the rankings today and about like the year and it was like, I was bottom with like two minutes run. I was like, how can like you count some, that? It's like some cool running moment, isn't it? <laughs> I just couldn't believe it happened. Like I trained all that year. I was in such good shape last year. And then in that one moment, I needed my body to work. My body had worked the whole year. Like my body was in such good place. And then literally five minutes before I was about to race, it went. Yeah. Smiling, laughing now. But that, again, you talk about the moment it was cancelled. It must have matched that easily. This was the, that was the worst one because I was definitely, I was in such good shape to go and, and run for a medal. People might not say that because oh, you haven't run that fast going into it, but I know what shape I was in. I know mm. what I was doing in training. And yeah, that was devastating. Yeah, Absolutely devastating. And what's even worse is I couldn't tell anyone because it literally happened five minutes before I had to be in, into the call room, into the stadium. So I couldn't then like text my mum and say, listen, like I'm not going to, uh, it's bad news. My hamstrings hurt. I couldn't text anyone. So everyone back home was like watching it. They got up in the morning, my friends, my family, 3 a.m. to watch the race. And then they see me like with my legs strapped up and they see me do one step and then walk the rest of the way. Everyone's like, what, what the heck's oh, going on? Man. So it was like, that was also pretty frustrating. But brave to go into it still as well. I had to try. I had to try. I, I Something about I always have to go and give it my best and I'll go until I can't give any more. And I felt like I had to go out there and, and at least try. Not just for myself, but for all the people back home and everyone that put so much effort into me. And yeah, my body just wasn't yeah. having it. <laughs> so how did you pick yourself back up from that? That was a tough one. That was a really tough one. Recent I've, I, as well. Right? Yeah, I've only sort of really come to terms with that again recently. Just sort of got some perspective that it's sport. Mm. And Steve said to me, listen, if you don't want to do sport, he said it's as hard as it sounds and as brutal as it sounds, that happens. It's not always going to be 
rosy and it's not always going to be positive there's the negative side of it as well and if you don't want to feel like that maybe do something else <laughs> so he was he's always been pretty like pretty brutal with me but i love that he's like he's like that tough love with me and i'm pretty good with that so um yeah he was I, I, it was just like accepting that as part of the journey and i know my best is yet to come and i took confidence from knowing that i was training with the guy that won the olympics in the 200 meters and beating him in the year and beating him before we went into the champs like i i took good confidence from that so i know my best is yet to come so as Adam touches on there, sometimes you have to allow yourself to feel that disappointment, to own it, to get through it and come back again. What Adam did in Tokyo was incredibly brave. Ultimately, it was devastating for him. But as he says, that's not got in the way of his motivation. When you look at athletes, like my guests on Better Begins here, you know that they are making sacrifices. But it wasn't till I spoke to artistic gymnast Georgia May Fenton that it really becomes clear the level to that sacrifice. Starting from a young age, she had to make a real commitment to gymnastics. So I never went to like any like parties or after school things. So I was always at the gym, but I never even wanted to. You don't get too much time in the sport. It's quite like short lived. So my motto has always been to just give it all I've got now. And I could do all those things after where I can't go back to being like this yeah. age and this fit in the sport now. Um, but I used to come out of school when I was eight even, a couple of days a week to go to training early. When I went to secondary school, I went maybe one and a half days a week maximum because I was just training all the time. But I still kept up with all my GCSEs and stuff, which is still really important. Yeah. You've got to have something for after gymnastics as well because, as I said, it is quite short-lived. So yeah. you need to be prepared for everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that first time you got, you got selected for GB, that must have been incredible. That was my first ever like, biggest goal that I wanted to achieve. And I got into the GB team when I was 11. 11. Which, yeah, but even that was still quite late compared to some of my teammates now. They were in squad when they were like nine. And I'm so like grateful for it because I wouldn't have been able to have done anything else with my career if I hadn't made the GB team at that time. And when I got my jacket, I don't think I took it off. I probably like slept in it, same as the leotards. <laughs> I'd wear the leotards every day. I was always doing like gymnastics at home, even at that age, because it was just so, so exciting. Is it competitive at that, even at that age in terms yeah. of... Because there's only so many spots, right, for per team. Yeah, it tends to be like five spots in a team and there could be 10 to 15 girls in the GB squad so it is very very competitive you don't start doing international competitions till you're about 12 13 or so but still you need to be the best to get selected so I mean what, what was the prep like to that moment then I mean you said you didn't feel too pressured going into it but yeah obviously so much at stake yeah what was what was the prep like how did you get in the right headspace for that being in the right headspace is such a big thing for gymnastics because obviously you have one turn mm. in that one moment to do your best routine. So you've got to be on it, confident, which is going to help you get through. As soon as there's a little bit of doubt, it's then so much harder to get through a routine successfully. But where there was no pressure on us, we was just young, literally going out, almost being tested to see how we would do. We all managed to just go out there and just have a good time. and. That was great for our headspace, and we ended up doing really, really well. I mean, you said, like, you have to have no doubt. I suppose it's natural. Do you get little moments of doubt and feel, yeah. the, feel the atmosphere? And how do you kind of negate that in your own head? It can be quite difficult at times. For example, if you've had, like, a bad 
build up, your comp prep's not gone too great, there will be a lot more doubt there. But every time I've doubted myself, I've ended up making a mistake. So mental training, we try to focus on a lot to try and be in the best headspace in the moment because even if our prep hasn't gone too well, but like you're on it and you're in a really good frame of mind, you can still make the routine. Yeah. So, yeah. What does that on it feeling feel like? Is it a happy place? Is it calm? Um, it... You're normally pretty calm and you're not worrying about a certain skill in particular. You're just like, oh, let's see how good we can do the routine rather than, oh my God, can we get through this routine? I love the idea that the mental side of George's work can be more important than the physical. In another part of our chat, Georgia talked about how when she was having fun, she'd always perform better. A good life lesson for you and me too, I think. Having fun and enjoying what you do was important to all of our guests, as if you're not enjoying it, you're probably not going to carry on. Tennis star Jodie Burridge touched on mindset too. She has a psychologist who helps keep her on track. Plus, she also has a great tip on how to keep mental focus when you're under pressure. I think that's such an important part of the game because like I said, it's an individual sport. You've got no one out there on court with you if you're not kind to yourself and if you don't have a positive mindset and mindset is such a big part of it, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, that's going to be quite hard. I suppose no one really thinks of that, but you're on court and essentially you're on your own, right? Yeah. You're having to deal with every every point, every yeah. part of the strategy, how you're feeling. Yeah. Is there things that the psychologist helps put in place? So that you have like tools in your in your own head when you're when yeah. you're on court. Yeah, we have like routines that you can kind of go through. I've started to use a little sticker and I actually stick it on the side of my racket and it's just got like three key words that I kind of they, they can change with match to match, but that I want to remember for that match. And it's just a tool that when I see those words, obviously it's gonna remind me of what I've spoke about with him because yeah, when you get to a high stress situation, I mean, you've your brain goes in it's the red, I think it's called the red and the blue brain, but it goes in the red and it's just irrational. Yeah. So that's kind of like a marker to try and bring you back into the rational mindset. And you um, can feel yourself going into that, that oh, mindset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a very big difference between the two. Angry Jody. <laughs> yeah, angry Jody is not good for my tennis. <laughs> so what um what else does he help you do off off court, I suppose, in terms of how you approach life? fitness nutrition does, does all that come into it yeah definitely I mean we kind of go through everything and what are my thoughts on yeah nutrition or what are my thoughts on the training or yeah kind of because you've got you've got to make decisions I guess especially being a player you employ people and it in, and it's working with those people it's, as much as it is an individual sport it, there's a team around you do you feel like accountable to those guys when you're competing yeah it's a massive team effort yeah what I do in the court I feel like represents them as well um and it's having that understanding with your team yeah. that yeah that's why everyone cares as much as each other it's not just me driving it like my fitness coach my my tennis coach it's all the same like if I'm if I lose a tough match or whatever they feel it too yeah like if I'm an idiot on court they're annoyed about it you know I mean so am I when I come off court because when your rational brain takes over you can obviously you're obviously just what are you doing I mean, I'd love to know what those words what, what those words <laughs> actually <saying. laughs> they're not that interesting to be honest there's so many words that could go on there but I'd say like one of them would be reset and that's obviously when I'm getting into that irrational state just to reset my mind um another one would be like deep breath because that really helps 
yeah, calm, calm yourself down, get your heart rate down. Um, say if I was working on something like for my serve, like ball toss, just to obviously remind me that's like a, a key thing for my serve, just kind of things like that. Could be a new racket design with just words. James I know, just, design, just, just words around the, all around the side. Well, one time I, I've handed my racket into the stringer and he was kind of like, what is this? <laughs> I was like, just ignore it. Please just ignore it. <laughs> it's nothing important. It's awesome to hear Jodie name checking the team that works behind the scenes for her. And that's been such an important thread throughout this entire podcast series. So many of my guests have talked about their teams. Adam Jamili wanted to run in Tokyo, even when he was injured because he didn't want to let people down. Kadina recognised her team of family and friends that got her back on her feet. England footballer Declan Rice talked to me about leading his team on the pitch as he stepped up this year to captain West Ham, aged only 22. This conversation around leadership was amazingly insightful, learning on what it takes to become a true leader. For me, it's, being a leader is key that anyone in the team like can come and talk to me, like feel like I'm approachable, but like they can talk to me about anything. And obviously on the pitch, like to protect the team as well. Like obviously you've got a responsibility as captain that you know, you need to look after your players. Mm. Of course, I'm only young, but I enjoy that. Like, enjoy that side of it. And obviously, like I said, being young again, obviously I'm playing with like 30-year-olds, 31-year-olds. Yeah. So for me to be like shouting or like, you know, obviously trying to help out, it feels a bit weird. Sometimes I'm like, are they actually going to listen to me? Because they're, like, <laughs> they're much older than me. Why are they going to listen to a 22-year-old? But I feel like I've got that respect yeah. as a player, as a person where, you know, they will listen. So you like lead by example and just be there for your teammates. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I feel like, I feel like it's important, you know, especially like playing for England and that as well. You know, sometimes you need to, you need to be that one that always performs. You know, you need mm. to go out there and, and give it everything and show that you deserve to be captain and that, you know, you, you should be in the team. Is it way heavy? Like, is it, you don't feel the pressure as a, as a captain when you step out? Or? No, not at all. I, I really enjoy it. I yeah. really enjoy it. Like I said, I don't, it don't really, like, it don't really affect me. I don't really ever really think about it. It's just, I go out there and it's just natural. Like, it just feels, feels yeah. right. I don't ever really put, I don't put too much pressure on myself to, to think about that type of stuff. Taking your stride. Yeah, just taking yeah, my stride. Yeah. And obviously, I always say when I go out on a football pitch, like it's a game of football. Done it for my whole life. Like whether it's in a cage, like seven aside eight. So like, you're either going to play well, you feel like you're going to play well. If you don't play well, you just, you've got another game next week to, to try and improve it. That's how I see it really. Cool way to look at it, I suppose. Yeah, it takes the pressure off long-term thinking and helps you focus on the day. And Yeah. Who do, who do you feel like most accountable to then when you're playing, when you're leading a team? Is it is it fans, family? Is it, um, is it your teammates? Now, team, you know what? Probably, yeah, teammates, obviously fans as well. Like, the fans are so important. I feel like I've built such a good relationship with West Ham fans that they see me as, you know, someone that like, they can relate to because I love football as well. Like, as well as I play, there's some footballers that don't actually like football. Yeah. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, some people just don't like it, um, but play it. But I absolutely love it. Like, if I weren't playing on the pitch, I'd be in the, I'd be in the stands 100%. Born and bred. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Amazing, but I suppose like dealing with those pressures, whether you seem like you're taking your stride, which is pretty cool. But I suppose anyone performing at the top, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of criticism. I suppose. Yeah, and yeah. I think one of the reasons set prevail up and the brand up is really to like ensure people be the best version of themselves that they can be. And I suppose yeah. anyone that gets to that version, to the top of the game, yeah. had to deal with a lot of press, stressure, adversity along the way. Yeah. So I suppose keen to dig in a bit and to look at how you kind of deal with the harder moments and stuff like that I suppose arguably you're in one of the most scrutinised positions yeah. you could imagine really yeah how do you kind of cope with that sort of stuff do you know what again like I've been criticised loads like everyone's got an opinion on yeah. what they think of you obviously you've got social media now where people have obviously always got an opinion 
I used to be one to always read it and think, oh, like used to doubt myself. Like mm. that was me like, what, two, three years ago, I was obviously playing in the Premier League, but you'd always go on Twitter after a game and see people talking and it would lead to other things and you read it and you start doubting yourself and you're like, oh no. But then as I've got older and matured, it's now it's what it is like. Yeah. To be honest with you, I've really, I've done well to just part that type of stuff. I feel like if you get too emotionally involved in all that stuff, then it can start to affect your football and you never want that. You know, you're obviously doing our profession for a reason. So... I'm obviously out there doing my stuff for a reason. Obviously, the people that are battering me are sat home for a reason. That's the way I see it. Like they couldn't, they couldn't go out there and do what I'm doing. So why let them affect me? It's quite like a mature decision, I suppose. It kind of been easy to make, and obviously still young. But was it was there a moment where you said, right, I'm going to choose not to read this, choose to focus on the good stuff? And yeah, I feel like I've had defining moments, even in my West Ham career, where I've been taken off at half time or given away a ball that's been led to a goal, and it obviously leads to a load of stuff that gets written about you. I feel like as I've just got older as a person, obviously just speaking to people, I've just kind of learned to just park it to the side and it's actually irrelevant in football. I've just got to worry about myself and what I do on the pitch. Some great tips on dealing with pressure there from Declan. I really like what Declan had to say about coping with what happens on social media. He's got a great perspective because he knows that he's achieved what he's achieved because of the work that he puts in. Keyboard warriors and social media are where they are because of the work they don't put in. When you're putting yourself out there, you have to remember that what people think of you is none of your business and you really have to choose who you pay attention to. Presenter Josh Denzel has also put himself above the parapet and reached for his dreams. He now finds himself in places with his heroes when he presents for Sports Bible or when he hosted Soccer Aid. But he realised very quickly that the heroes he had were human too, like when he met British gymnast Max Whitlock. I come from Soccer Aid, right, and Max Whitlock was there. And uh, I'm sat on the bench with him and he's like, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm like, I'm not even playing. I'm nervous. You, you, like, you Olympian, bro. Like, you've done it all. Yeah. Like, in the pressure situation, it's not a team game. Like, this is just you. And he's he's getting nervous there. So I thought, like, I am human. That's awesome, isn't it, to see? It's like people are people, right? And yeah, exactly. Getting out of yeah. comfort zones. That is the key to understand, like, for what I do as well in, like, in the presenting side of things and being around, like, some of my favourite athletes and footballers and sports people and entertainers, it's like you realise very quickly after spending not even that much time, but like an extended period of time with them, is that they are just normal, yeah. normal people with normal, normal thoughts. And yes, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, you seem like super comfortable in that environment. You've like established yourself now, right? Deeper than like England team, NBA teams. It's like that you're comfortable in that environment, aren't you? Was that always the way, or did it take a bit of getting used to? If I'd have had that prevail heartbreak monarch <laughs> you would have seen that it would have been going through the roof but it it's not always the case it comes with like like anything you do the more you do something the more comfortable yeah. it gets i remember like my first ever interview i did was with hector bellerin it was for call of duty and sport bible right and i've left my actual job that i did like i was, was working at a big big tech company selling marketing software no right and I'm, i've left there so i'm in like tie and a, and a jacket I, I know exactly and i, I rolled i rolled down to uh, i rolled down to this hotel that they, they were filming it at and you've got like five minutes to get ready and then suddenly you're boom you're, you're doing a live instagram video it's like the channel like sport bible had like three million followers at the time let me tell you how nervous i was that like, my boys were messaging me afterwards being like you had the driest mouth in the universe you're like you know trying to ask questions i'm like i'm like sweating but like a year later you know what i mean i Chilled. You know what I mean, I still do get nervous. Of course yeah. you do, but like not to the level where it was before. I suppose it's knowing you can like feel like that, recognize that feeling, but you can still 
still get it done anyway. Still crack on. That's I think the key is to know like no no one walks around and is immune to emotion. Like no matter what you do, you can you can dumb it down, you block it out, but you can understand it. And like I think it's knowing the fact that like I feel like this for a reason. Yeah. Or like when you prepare a certain way or when you're confident in your own ability, the nerves get less and less and less because you're like, I'm ready to go. Like, yeah. I'm ready to do this. You've like gone from, obviously like we'll talk about it a bit more detail later, but like from sport Bible and doing, yeah. doing presenting and getting in amongst it in as many ways as possible as you can. But then like to interview in the likes of in the England den and yeah. Roy Keane, who was talking about a minute yeah, ago, did, yeah, it, did, yeah. It, did it feel surreal? Did it feel like you meant to be there? Or was it still well, that same? It's crazy because like if I'd have told my like 15 year old self, like this is what you're going to do as a job. Like yeah. this is who you're going to be around. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have believed a word of it. Like, I wake up every morning, I'm like, the day before we did the, the overlap, Gary Neville, Roy Keane, and Jamie Carragher, and, and all, the, all the fans, I was thinking, what the hell is going on? Like, I'm Josh, yeah. like, I'm just Josh. Like, I, I still picture myself as like the 16, 17, 18 year old me, you know what I mean? Just yeah. going to college, going to school, to then be sat around these legends of the game, with like top tier broadcasters, and there's, you know, I'm, I'm in the same sentence as these guys. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's crazy, right? It, yeah, yeah. believe yeah. me, I, I still feel yeah. And I don't think, I'm sure, like, you know I mean? When, when you look, when you look at your brand and you, you think, I've done this. Like, this is sometimes it's like a little pinch yourself moment. I've had so many pinch yourself moments from talking to these guys for the Better Begins Here podcast. And I hope you got some takeaways that have helped in all aspects of life, as well as your training. Whether it's inspired you on those days where you don't want to get out of bed to go for that run or helped you reset your mindset. We've had an exciting year at Prevail and we really are just getting started. You can now be a part of Prevail and take your training to the next level by shopping our smartware at prevail.com. We can't wait for you to wear our products and join the movement. We have a super exciting year ahead with loads more athletes and insights to speak with and inspire you on your journeys. And in January, we launch our full Prevail clothing range. It's been a long time coming. We cannot wait to share it with you. Thanks for listening to this series of Better Begins Here. You'll hear from us again soon.